0: The combination of novelty plus familiarity. The intersection of those two, to me, is where virality really comes alive.
1: Hey, Jenny. Hey, Sky. So uh, we're almost done with 2020. Can you believe it? Yeah,
2: it's. <laughs> What what could you even say about this year?
1: (laughs) There are no words. Absolutely no words. words. Oh, my God. Uh, There are words, though, for the amount of really incredible rough cut podcast episodes that have been produced, though. I think on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for all of your amazing work and uh, interviewing magic in bringing these conversations to life. They've all been just so inspiring. So thank you.
2: It's been really fun. I've learned so much. And. A lot of our listeners have reached out and told me how much they've they've learned from mm-hmm. this podcast and come with episode ideas. So thank you guys so much for that. And actually, our episode today comes from one of those emails. Our guest today, Upton Sahidi, is a fan of the podcast, and he reached out. Upton spent seven years at CNBC, where he was a host and video producer. CNBC, of course, is NBC News Tech and Business Vertical which is a challenging thing to make videos about because it's not inherently visual. And so he was sort of tasked with capturing young audiences on a legacy media network mm-hmm. and making it visual engaging. And one of the questions that we've explored on this podcast in the, in the past is what makes something go viral? Like what is it about a video that really takes off online? Um, and our guest Upton has spent a lot of time exploring that. And uh, we we go into that a lot in this episode today.
1: That's fantastic. And there's a lot to learn from that from his time in legacy media. And also just from watching his videos myself, he makes them quick and snappy, and they are definitely geared towards a younger audience. Um, and uh, they're fun, too. Definitely,
2: yeah. And he actually went freelance, so he was he was based in Asia. He was in Singapore and then Hong Kong, and he actually just left CNBC uh, to grow his own channels. And he moved to Los Angeles. That's
1: incredible. And Upton's journey and this move that he's making is definitely a trend that a lot of folks in our in our industry are making. So I'm sure people can glean a lot. Absolutely, yeah. It feels like a, a lot
2: of our guests. Have had to make that big jump, even our last guest, Julie Cohen, mm-hmm. she spent more than twenty years at network news and left to to make documentary films. So it seems like something we're seeing over and over again. but it is just such a brave thing to do
1: absolutely. and forging forging a new path because the the current uh, systems and gatekeepers in a sense are kind of starting to maybe break down a little bit and we're, we're beginning to see cracks as um, the old ways of doing things are uh, being realized as not necessarily the way to go. And so
2: nothing in this industry is a sure thing, even you know. if you have a, I mean, look at Quibi. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You mentioned Quibi, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Quibi. You you really taught us a lesson. Um, <laughs> uh, well, one one thing before we dive into this fascinating episode with Upton is that uh, I just want to say so. So again, y'all, uh, my name is Skye and I'm the founder and executive director of the Video Consortium. And uh, you know, we started in 2015. We we became a 501c3 nonprofit in 2017, and this year 2020. You know, five years in, it's a really critical time for us. And we're doing an end of year fundraiser. I know it's the end of December, but we are looking to get donations from our own members. Um, If you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy being a VC member um, and getting access to the jobs and the programs and the gatherings and the workshops and the chapters and all of the different things that we, this volunteer run grassroots network does, it would be wonderful if you could show your support and donate. And your donations will go directly into making sure that the Video Consortium survives and thrives in 2021. And so all of these things that you appreciate and love about VC um, will continue with your support. And we are counting on you. So please, if you could, go to videoconsortium.org. We'll also leave the donation link and the VC link in the show notes. But please show your support and help us continue. So, thank you for being a listener uh, this year. It has been freaking crazy, but also efforts like these, like what you're doing, Jenny, what we're what we're doing to foster community within our filmmaking and journalistic collective of the video consortium coming together as creatives um, this is the stuff that matters so thank you for being part of our journey too. And so with that Jenny <laughs> I think it's time for us to dive in on this last episode of 2020. I can't believe it uh, yes and we have a lot of great
2: episodes planned for 2021 so definitely stay tuned but for today uh, this is Upton Sahidi and you're listening to Rough Cut. Here we go. Thank you so much, Upton, for being on the podcast.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to do this.
2: If you could just start off by telling me how you even became interested in the media production space.
0: Sure. So, <laughs> I think I was actually a kid, and I I would just like I was kind of obsessed with local news. I would just see the local news reporters at the football games and stuff like that, and be like, "Oh my god, that's the the reporter." And I, I think I always liked. TV journalism, because it was kind of the combination of intellect and storytelling, along with presenting and, and oratory skills, you know, and, you know, I have some friends that are into acting, which I respect a lot, but that's really kind of, you know, you're in my mind, they're giving life to uh, uh, the creativity of someone else, right. And then obviously, you know, there's a lot of very respectable professions that are, you know, scientists and, and things like that, but they're also they're not necessarily having to 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 you know speak and and communicate in a in a manner that that is that that is kind of persuasive or convey a story. And so I think ever since a young a uh, young age, I've always been really excited about journalism, particularly TV news. Hmm. In
2: 2016, you moved to Hong Kong, and did you launch a digital? Video initiative there for CNBC, or were you just a part of it?
0: So I was originally based out of Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, so the New York headquarters in New Jersey, <laughs> and um, and I really wanted to to do more reporting because I was a TV producer. So I was booking guests, you know, producing the guests, communicating that to the anchors, and then an opportunity came up, and the role was called multimedia journalist. And it was the first one in Asia, right? Traditionally, CNBC in in Asia had just been television and the website, right? So this was the first um, role that they fa- that they had hired and and created to have a, an initiative around a third platform of content, which was essentially you know digital video. And so I applied and I got the job. And I remember taking the job, but but really more excited you know saying okay yeah i can do multi-platform but i was really just excited to do live television and i asked um i asked the guy who hired me and i said you know would there be an opportunity to do live television and he said yeah absolutely there's you know they're always they're always hungry for more live tv reporters so that's definitely something that you can do so even though i i did get hired to 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 launch this initiative for asia i was actually more excited about the legacy platform of live tv And then over time, while I was in Asia, I I started to see the value in digital video, the growth that that was happening, and the ability to tell stories to a global audience at any time, right? Versus live television, you know, you're very restricted to is somebody watching TV at a certain time. And then all of a sudden, I was creating content that my friends could watch, you know, anytime, any location.
2: Hmm. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the kind of content that you were producing? Just give them a little bit of context.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So so CNBC obviously is all things money, finance, stock market, and, and economic news. And so, you know, for the most part, that's the, the wheelhouse I was operating within. But our executives were really very supportive with me in that we were bringing on a whole new demographic into the CNBC wheelhouse which is traditionally older you know executives right sitting in in boardrooms and conference rooms and and now all of a sudden because we were going on YouTube because we were going on Facebook we had an an opportunity to capture a whole new wave of audiences so one of the things I really played with was how do I tell stories that relate to tech to money in a way that's relatable And, and more importantly visual right because you know, on TV, you can put a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and that makes a great exclusive interview. On YouTube, not so much. So, one of the opportunities I found very early on was tech. Uh, you know, when I, I like to say, when I moved from New York to Asia, I there were there were no Chinese tech companies, you know, at least B to C that were that were making a splash, that were coming out of China and making a splash on a global scene. Lo and behold, lo and behold, four years later. You have two of the four uh, biggest smartphone makers, Chinese. You have obviously TikTok, Chinese. And so I was really fortunate in, to be in a position where I could cover a lot of that, a lot of the coming of age of China tech. And so I went to the big tech corporations, their headquarters um, throughout China, and and I did digital videos for them. And I toured their campuses. I interviewed their executives. And I showcased a lot of the technology that I think was kind of, misunderstood. I know if you were sitting in the U.S. reading U.S. publications, watching U.S. business news, you would think one way about Huawei or Xiaomi. But for me to actually get the opportunity to go on their campuses and and kind of profile, the, like Xiaomi, for instance, was started in 2010, right? So in less than a decade, this tech company has become one of the, the global smartphone leaders. And, and to show a different side, to Xiaomi beyond the Trump, you know, the Trump news and the 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 sanctions against some of these companies was really was really rewarding because I kind of I saw it as like I'm learning and I get to bring an audience along for the ride. I didn't know what the heck Xiaomi was. I didn't know how to pronounce Huawei, you know. And then for me to have the opportunity to go to their headquarters and see 10, 20,000 young Chinese employees working at these campuses and then film that was really rewarding.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I can imagine there's kind of like unique challenges that come along with just doing tech and business stories because it is, as you said, it's hard to make visual. I mean, we think of tech videos as like the classic, like unboxing the new iPhone, you know, and how do you make it visual? How do you make it dynamic? How do you make it like, well, who are the characters? Are there any emotional stakes? How do you make it a story? Yeah. And maybe it doesn't need to be a story and people will still be interested in it, but I just, you know, those elements are still pretty important to keep people watching. Can you talk about any like unique challenges that you've faced with covering technology and being in the the CNBC space?
0: Absolutely. I think, you know, so actually my first two years in Asia, I was based in Singapore. So I, I actually went from 2016, I moved to Singapore. That's where the headquarters are for CNBC Asia. And then exactly as you said, because after about almost not even after about a year, actually, I I went to my manager and I said, listen, I'm tasked with creating unique digital content, right? That has to be visually compelling. Singapore was a great place for CEOs for Asia Pacific, but it wasn't a really good place for visually compelling content. Visually compelling content was really China, mainland China, Hong Kong. And so I really pushed for a transfer. And they they ended up transferring me. And I said, even Hong Kong, you know, even if you point the camera somewhere, it's a visual background, you've got mountains, you've got skyscrapers, you've got water. So, So there was a lot of A lot of kind of challenges initially with me saying, hey, like, I can't I can only do so much in Singapore. And I felt like I had actually outgrown Singapore within within about a year in terms of visual content. So I was finding a lot of my stories by traveling to Japan, traveling to Indonesia, traveling to Thailand. And and, you know, so so they ended up basing me in Hong Kong. And the second I started to go to mainland China, it was just a light bulb in terms of good visual content because it's like, I mean, you walk into a Seven Eleven, and this was about two years ago, and I remember, you know, everyone was just paying with their phone with the QR code. Nobody had a credit card. Nobody had cash. I was the... The, the jerk in line that they literally had to like deal with the cash and find change because they probably hadn't had someone use cash in days. And so just that alone could be like a good, you know, maybe not a whole digital video, but but a good snippet for our Instagram channel or something, right? And so so there was so many visually interesting components of just walking around China that, that just are begging to be told. And same with Japan. You know, so in Japan, I did a story on, I, I spent a week with a, a mini robot that's actually a companion robot. And his name is Robohan, very cute little robot. And and that was one of the the, the most rewarding stories I did for CNBC and, and the arc was really personal. It was like, I spent a week with a robot, you know, and it started with me like kind of renting him and just laughing because he's like bowing to me and saying, nice to meet you. And I'm like, this is the weirdest thing. And then by the end of the story, I really, ha- I really started to treat this robot like an emotional figure, like I, I almost personified him to, to somebody, I went on another shoot, and I was telling the guy I was interviewing, I'm like, Oh, earlier today, he did this, you know, almost as if it's a cat or a dog or something. And, and so So, you know, again, that goes back to the narratives, right? Like if you're, if you're reading about Japanese tech, you're thinking like how weird people are, you know, are using robots as companions, that's freaking weird. And, and I'm not saying it's not weird, but, but, but after getting to do that experience and actually spending time, you know, experiencing what it was like, you know, with one of their new companion robots, I started to see, you know, the relationship, you know, how how, seniors, lonely people in Japan could find comfort in a in a companion robot. And so so that, you know, back to your original question, that's a very naturally visually, you know, it's a tech story, but it's naturally very visual, right? The robot at lunch, the robot at dinner, walking in the train station with holding the robot. So there were definitely moments where I, you know, I could kind of discern, okay, this is going to be really interesting, visually compelling. And then moments like, you know, anything related to AI. Cryptocurrency, those were things that I almost 99% of the time just said no or stayed away from because that to make good visual content is very yeah. challenging.
2: Yeah, cryptocurrency, just I don't know. The only like docs I've watched about it are a lot of cheesy stock footage or like weird graphics because it's impossible to visualize, as you said.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: You mentioned that you lived in Singapore and you did this great video about the Singapore airport, which makes me really want to go. It seems like Singapore has all the best things, the best subway, best airport. They've got something (laughs) figured out there. But you did a video about the Singapore airport that got 27 million views, something like that another video about digital nomads that went really viral as well. Can you talk about just what you've learned over the years of doing digital video for social media? What you found really clicks with people? Like, is there kind of a secret sauce to virality that you can talk about?
0: Absolutely. I've, I've kind of brainstormed about this. And in, in my opinion, I think the secret sauce to virality is the combination of novelty plus familiarity the intersection of those two to me is where virality really comes alive or, or at least relatability and so you mentioned the singapore airport everyone you know most people have been in an airport right they know what an airport is they've flown through an airport especially in the us when we associate when we think about an airport we think about old infrastructure delays stress right and, and so the idea of juxtaposing that idea to the Singapore airport, which felt like a Ritz-Carlton, <laughs> was, I think, really why it got 27 million views. Because people think, well, airport is supposed to be this, but wow, their airport is that. And same thing with the digital nomad video. You know, everyone, under, everyone in the world knows about work. They understand what work is. And obviously before pandemic they associate work with going sitting at a desk working for a manager and so to see millennials on their laptops sipping coconuts and making money and working again it combined the the familiar the familiar with the novel you know one one time that this actually i think failed was as as rewarding as that robot in Japan video was for me to produce and film it 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 kind of flopped if you know just based on the numbers and I think because that was probably too novel for most people it was especially western audience it was just weird right it's like what no I don't even I can't even understand you know it's it's
2: not even like a possibility in their life that they're gonna live with a robot.
0: Exactly, exactly. But yeah, yeah, there's robots that have, you know, utility benefits in their life, but not that have them. We all
2: live with robots, but not like. That kind of robot. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the Singapore airport one was a really fun one for me, too, because this was some, you know, I flew in from JFK to Singapore airport and my jaw just dropped when I saw this airport. And I've been obsessed with this airport for about a year. And I told my colleague who was a local Singaporean, I said, I want to do a video on the Singapore airport. And she said, well, what about it? Are you, you want to do a video on the new terminal next year? And I said, no, no, just about the airport and maybe, I don't know, five ways to design the world's best airport. And she's like, no, this is a dumb idea. She's like, there's nothing new. Everyone, we already all know about the airport. Like there's, there's no point in doing this video. <laughs> and i pushed back because i'm like well it's 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 boring for you because you were born and raised here and this a- airport has always been you know 20 minutes away from your house but f- coming from my perspective it's actually crazy <laughs> and so i i pushed through and i did the video and you know i was so glad i did but i think i think it and, and you know another thing too that i learned you know as a journalist is a lot of times even you know that was my local colleague and then i had a canadian colleague who, who he he understood. He's like, oh yeah, the airport is really unique for most people. He's like, but there's nothing new to it. I don't understand, right? And and again, so it, I really kind of had to break a lot of kind of break a, break through a lot of noise of legacy media thinking, right? This was a one journalist saying, hey, this is a boring thing. The airport's always been there. Another one saying, and he was a live TV producer. He said, well, there's what's new about this, right? Because he would never run a story on live TV about the airport there's no news but but in digital we have more freedom right we we can tell we can tell stories digital video we can tell stories that have longer shelf life in fact we should we shouldn't be thinking like the live tv folk or even some of the print folk that that are thinking about why is this news now you know we can think about the the more taking a a concept a little bit deeper
2: yeah i i used to work for discovery digital and i um I would like write explainer videos for them. And it was really interesting to see the ones that took off and the ones that didn't. I mean, a lot of them were tied to the news, but it seemed like, as you said, the ones that were kind of out of left field and like very evergreen, especially living on YouTube because people will search for certain things. And so, you know, the evergreen ones will just keep coming up and they'll grow views over time. And I think the most popular video I ever wrote got like millions of views is um, the most powerful passports. And it's it's as you said, it's like no one thinks about which passports have power, but yet we all kind of have passports. You know, it's so it's again, it's travel related. It's something like most of us experience. It's a little bit novelty, but not too novelty. I agree about the evergreen thing. It's like in news, we're always like, oh, why tell this story now? And sometimes there's just interesting things that people, you know, will click on no matter what.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it took us a little while to get our footing around that. But eventually, we got it. So for instance, we saw that the the the, the article, the dot com writers were writing a lot about the South China Sea. And, you know, our first inclination was like, okay, what's happening this week with the South China Sea? And then and then we realized like, no, actually, why don't we just do an explainer on the South China Sea dispute that you can watch six months from now and it's still relevant. And so, you know, it definitely took us a while to get to that, but we eventually figured it out that it's like, okay, take the the headlines, but, you know, go a, a step deeper into the concept and, and, and explain to to the audience what's happening in a way that's not going to be irrelevant next week.
2: Totally. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Xiaomi before. It's a Chinese, um, what do you call it? Like a Chinese tech brand, almost like Apple?
0: Yeah, a a lot of times people will call it the Apple of China.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's got kind of similar branding. Um, You did a a video about that, about an eight minute video, and that was turned into a 30 minute documentary. Um, Were you involved in the production of the the longer piece?
0: Yeah, so that was really exciting where I went to, uh, I went to one of our executives and I said, Hey, I want to do, you know, a digital video on Xiaomi, right? This is a company that's, that's less than a decade old. And how did they become India's number one smartphone maker? How did they become, come in, bef- you know, behind Apple and Samsung and, and Huawei and, and it got to a point where I was getting such good access at the headquarters that I went to to our executive and said, why don't we make this into a 30-minute special? And he was all for it. So, So yeah, it was kind of reverse engineering content, right? Traditionally, we think about Creating content for you know long form, uh, for television, and then maybe we can do a couple breakout segments for digital. But but we actually reverse engineered it, and and so yeah, I did the I I produced, I hosted, and and even edited the eight minute piece, and I had a, a camera a camera operator that I worked with. And then, and then we put that on YouTube and Facebook and our website and, you know, it was started performing really well. And even, you know, I already had the approval to kind of go ahead with the 30 minute special on it. Um, but, but so after it was already kind of doing well on digital, then I, I kind of, I'm trying to remember, I, I had a lot of content. I think I did uh, yeah, I think I did the initial I think I did a rough draft script of how I think the 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 half hour special should look based on, you know, the fact that I was there and I reported in it. And then it kind of went through the, the approvals. They made some modifications. I did the voiceover to bridge the segments. And then it aired. It aired globally on CNBC, which was which was just so rewarding to see something, you know, that I had pitched and produced get that kind of exposure. And, and it was also one of those things, too, where like, you know, around the time of, you know, when, when I was a kid, I romanticized the person on TV, right? That was the 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 most, you know, the coolest thing, the coolest journalist or reporter or anchor. And so it got to a point where even though, you know, I would tell my friends, oh, my, my documentary is going to air, you know, Sunday at 7pm. They're like, okay, well, is it on YouTube? I mean, the first thing they would say is, is it on YouTube, right? And it's like, well the the shorter version but the full version is on tv and it got to a point where i had to question my you know my excitement around live television that's that was the the younger me who was so excited about that but things have changed times have changed it was not that cool to my friends or my family that you know I hosted this show globally on a on a TV network it just wasn't which is crazy to think about but it, it just wasn't that cool and and so I think for a lot of it I had to unlearn the romanticification that I had around live TV um but you know having said that I was I'm still very proud of that that documentary and and it ended up uh, airing on American Airlines as well American Airlines bought bought the, the show from CNBC and licensed it. So, you know, to see it on in-flight entertainment amongst, you know, a lot of things coming out of Hollywood was just, it's just, it's kind of surreal, right? To think that like, well, I just pitched this as like a YouTube video and then to see the the play and exposure that it, it ultimately could get.
2: Can you talk about the process of making the, this short video into a 30 minute film? And was this the longest thing that you've ever produced? And can you talk about the difference between making something long form and making something short form and what you kind of learned from that?
0: Sure. So yeah, that's a great question. I think in general, one thing I learned early on with digital video is, and, and I tried, you know, I taught, I tried to teach a lot of people internally about this as well, was that for instance, you know, when you create a digital video, you're, as you know more than anyone, your first few seconds are the most important, right? That's what's gonna capture someone's attention. I think they say on Facebook, the average person will spend 1.7 seconds deciding if they're gonna watch your video or scroll. And so, so I learned with digital video, it's very important to be quite one dimensional, i.e. really focus on one aspect of the story. And one example I gave was, you know, one of my colleagues was doing a story on on luxury movie theaters in South Korea. And the first 20 seconds was like a traditional TV package. It's like, do you ever go on Netflix and you you're tired of the same old sitting on your couch watching Netflix? Well, you know, now there's luxury cinemas in South Korea. And I said, you know, that's great that works on TV because you already have your audience, but on on social media and digital video, you have to just start with your best shot of the luxury movie theater and get straight to it, right? And so, I think same thing with the Xiaomi documentary, I kind of I kind of knew that we had a more loyal audience on TV, so we could actually you know we definitely obviously use much longer sound bites i interviewed the head of of xiaomi international and and he you know the sound bites were maybe three times as long on tv as it was on digital video which again is counterintuitive because i remember when i first started at cnbc so many times the tv people would say hey we could we only had time for 3 minutes of this executive on live tv why don't you use all 20 minutes on the website and and it's like well actually there's so much more things competing for attention on digital so we can't we don't want 20 minutes of just a talking a talking person on on digital so so yeah definitely when i produced the the doc the half hour special it was definitely a lot more geared at um uh, you know, being able to definitely go a little bit deeper. I I, I knew the audience would probably be different too, right? The average audience, I think on YouTube is in their 20s and 30s versus on TV is is 50 plus, you know, that's just a guess. And so I knew that we could go a little bit more uh, in depth with, with the business aspect of it as well. And, and maybe thinking about the audience on digital more as like, a little bit more excited about the consumerism of it and the the cool tech of the smartphone or should I buy this phone or that phone, things like that.
2: In your videos, you seem to be like a pretty neutral host, but then sometimes there's like little glimmers of your personality here and there. Can you talk about how you think about how much of yourself to put in the video and if there's any value in the host having a personality?
0: Yeah, great question. I think I think that we found quite, you know, early on in our stages that is was that there is a lot of value in putting personality in the video. And you know, one example I can give is in that digital nomad video that had that got, I think you, like eleven million views, there was a moment in that video where I interview, I interview a couple of you know, Americans who are working in Bali on their laptops building their business. I go to lunch with them, I sit with them at lunch. And then afterwards, um, I'm I'm looking into camera and I say, okay, we just finished lunch. Now I guess we're going for a surf. And I said, and I'm with, and I look at the the guy and I say, what's your name again? And he goes, Zach. What's yours? And I go, Upton. And and that was a moment where you know traditionally we would obviously edit something like that out, but for some reason I was like, let me just keep it in. It's just such an authentic, real moment. And I think by far the most amount of people that commented were were about the comments were about that moment. It was like, I can't believe, you know, you kept that part in, or I can't believe you forgot his name, and you had just finished eating lunch with him. So, you know, I think from that, I learned that there is a lot of value in 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 showing personality, in bringing in authentic moments, even if it's a mess up, even if it's like a, you know, a fun little piece to camera, and you mess up, and then maybe doing a, a, a bloop, You know and then redoing it little moments like that not overdoing it but i think it's really important to show personality to the digital audience because i always ask people it's like when you first join facebook you know did you join to connect with a company no did you know most people will say no did you join facebook to connect with a, a media outlet or a news agency usually the answer is no did you join facebook to connect with another person And then it's like 99% of the time it's, yes, I just wanted to connect with other people, right? So the more personality you can bring to a news piece, almost like a vlogger in a way, you know, the better. And I think I was really lucky to be working for CNBC that allowed me to bring that personality and even encouraged me. I I started to push back against DSLR and say, why don't I just do iPhone uh, selfie mode? And because we saw that the views were actually sometimes, actually oftentimes better in selfie mode. And so I think, you know, I actually started to show more and more personality as the years progress. Now, it obviously depends on the context, too. In, in more of our explainer videos, they, those were very scripted, and there wasn't necessarily that much opportunity for, for personality. But in the more reporting, like the Japanese robot video that I did, the digital nomad, those moments, I think, are really, I saw, I saw them as mini docs, you know, and, and for that, you, you definitely need to show a little bit of your personality.
2: Yeah, just going back to the digital nomads piece. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the difference between shooting an, an iPhone and, and a DSLR. I think probably a lot of our audience won't be excited to hear this because we all love cameras and we want more high production content out there, obviously. But it is true that it feels like a lot of the content on social media That goes viral is just like selfie video or somebody just capturing something interesting with their cell phone. Um, And that digital nomad video is obviously it's your phone, right? I mean, it's very unpolished. It looks like you were just on vacation and you just started making, you know, taking a video, whatever that you'd post on your Facebook. But that kind of raw content, I think really resonates with people because it is like you said it's like connecting with a friend versus this is content that's made by a company for me to consume.
0: Mhm. Absolutely. And yeah, that that was filmed not just on iPhone but iPhone 7 at the time is was what I filmed that on and and what's what's also I find fascinating is that aired on television as well. We would do we would usually do a 60 second cut of of each of our digital videos and they would air during commercial breaks globally for months, sometimes two months. And so I remember sometimes I would just turn on the channel and see me in Bali with a coconut like that was shot on my iPhone 7. And and I think that was really a testament to the power of storytelling, you know, that even even TV would, would was willing to to put that on.
2: That's so interesting. It was on TV because we think of broadcast news as being like so polished, you know, they have a sound person, they have lights, everything's all set up they get the soundbite, you know, I mean, I think it's kind of refreshing that we're moving away from that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, I don't know if you're if you're on if you're using TikTok.
2: Oh, I'm not. not. I was gonna ask you, I know a lot of news outlets are trying out TikTok and wanted to know what you thought of that.
0: Yeah. So so I mean, I just the reason I bring it up is because, as you mentioned, in a way, you know, for a lot of us, Journalists, it is scary to think that, you know, the production quality can, can go down and maybe should go down in some regards. But, but watching, you know, some of the, the best performing content on TikTok that, that, that does have, you know, news value to it is fascinating for me. I just joined, you know, a few months ago and, and seeing some of the more highbrow content that, that creators are putting out there that truly is just you know absolutely shot on their iPhone and narrated in the TikTok app it's really it's really eye opening and i think that you know it's definitely an interesting time that we're that we're living in especially you know i've listened to a, a lot of the episodes of rough cut and you know i know you've covered a lot of the the journalists how we've had to adapt for the pandemic and being in living rooms and losing the the production quality in that regard so i think between the emergence of TikTok and what's happening with, with the pandemic and that people are becoming a lot more low budget and resourceful with the way they're filming and how they're filming. I think we're going to see the, the acceleration of, of this kind of storytelling.
2: Hmm. Are there any particular creators that come to mind that are making news content on TikTok that you want to shout out?
0: There is one in particular and that's the I don't even know his name but it's the Washington Post TikTok account. Mm-hmm. So they did something really fascinating and I I I don't know but I have to guess that they're one of the top if not the top on TikTok.
2: Yeah, they, they were on there early. I think they were like the first.
0: Really? Okay, yeah. And so yeah, so for those who don't know, they they basically gave the password as far as I know to one of their reporters and said, "You're the guy, you're in charge, have fun with it." And and it's really working for them. I mean, I, I, they're just—they're super successful. And I—I I think again, it goes back to what, what what I was saying about personality. Is that the 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 TikTok consumers don't necessarily want to connect with a a brand or a news publisher, but they want to connect with a person. So so by Washington Post just having the same character every time tell the news and and you know create content for that platform, I think it really works. And I think a lot of news publishers have struggled with that because they're trying to just kind of take whatever they were doing on Instagram and throw it on TikTok and it just doesn't work the same way.
2: Hmm. So, So you left CNBC in September to kind of expand your own personal channels. Can you talk about that decision and kind of what pushed you to do it?
0: Yeah, absolutely you know, one of the things that made my role so rewarding was a lot of traveling and going to the field, going to companies and, you know, filming stuff. And trying to do that on Zoom, you know, from my couch was really challenging. It was challenging and not rewarding either. And so, you know, given the uncertainty of where things are, I just knew it was time for me to do my own. And so, So, you know, now I'm creating my own content and it's also seeing some of my, you know, I'll call them my own mentors. Like, uh, I don't know if you've heard Nas Daly, Drew Binsky. These are guys who started in 2016 and they just started making videos on their own, one video a day or two, you know, a video every other day. And they just started doing it themselves. And I remember, you know. Like, Nas was able to build an audience of over 30 million people. Drew Binsky, who's now a friend of mine, creates travel content. He was able to build an audience of 6 million um, around the same time that we, you know, an established media network, were building an audience of 1 to 2 million, you know? So I think just looking at the numbers really kind of blew my mind that, wow, there really is so much demand in in people relating to, to somebody one-on-one. And I think, again, back to Washington Post and the TikTok, it's a great example of people resonate with connecting with you, you know, you, the journalist, you, the storyteller. In um, and, and, and it's not necessarily, you know, as valuable to do it for for an established news network, right? Um, we're just seeing that kind of, that question be asked more and more now. And I think, you know, now this is a great example of, of a AJ plus i mean these are great examples of publishers that that really thought about social media first and telling stories for an audience where they're at not trying to adapt legacy media to new platforms and so 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 yeah so i started creating my own content i do 3 videos a week for YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok and you know I know it's it's a long-term play, right? It's not it's not something I can just do for 2 months and like hope for the best. It's something that I that I've committed to for several years, you know, and so it's been really rewarding and also just being able to create content without any a certain look right so one day I'll try this graphic the next day I'll try no graphics it, it's really fun I just feel like I'm in my own playground as a as a content creator right now
2: that's great and it's such a brave thing to do right now I mean right now especially but any time to leave a steady job and do your own thing and so many people I've had on the podcast have done it um, and I'm always just really impressed with people who can pull it off so congrats Thank you so much for reaching out and for sharing all of your wisdom with us. I love having people from the like digital video journalism world on. I feel like we don't have enough of them.
0: Well, thank you. It's such an honor to be on with you and again, I'm a big fan of the show and I've learned so much from some of your guests, so I hope, you know, if, if just one guest can learn something from my experience, that would be awesome.
2: Rough Cut is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler, and Sky Dylan Robbins. Our original music is by Zach Wright.
1: And the podcast is part of the Video Consortium, which is a global creative network and community that unites today's nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. You can visit videoconsortium.com and we'd love for you to join our film family.
2: And we love hearing from listeners. So if you'd like to send us a note, you can find us on Instagram at at roughcutpodcast, or you can send us an email podcast at videoconsortium.com. And don't forget to rate us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Thank you and see you soon.